I don't know about you, but when I think of a monk, I think of a recluse, a quiet and reserved man shrouded in mystery, living in the mountains. Maybe I'm just watching too much television, because as we'll find out this morning, some monks are anything but. Good morning. I'm George Polarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm joined in the studio this morning by Gadadhar Pandit Das. He's a monk right here in New York City and the author of Urban Monk, Exploring Karma, Consciousness, and the Divine. Pandit, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, George. Happy to be here. So your monastery is located on the lower east side of Manhattan, on the same block as several nightclubs, bars, a tattoo parlor, a funeral home, and a drag queen cabaret. Not exactly the image that comes to mind when you think of the location of a monastery. How do you fit into the neighborhood? Well, it is definitely an unusual location um, for a monastery to be in. But at the same time, you know, in our tradition monks have a specific purpose, which is to reach out to to the public and help them balance their spiritual and material activities, balance their spiritual and material lives. So what a better place to be than in a place where it's kind of all happening. If we were living in the mountains, which of course a lot of monks do, and that's fine, maybe they want to focus really just on their own internal uh, enlightenment, uh, you know, but like I said, within our tradition, um, we want to be in an environment where we, people can access us and we can access people. And and being there, and the way we access people is we have a couple of programs every week. You know, of, of course, our the monastery is called the Bhakti Center, and we have a couple of programs, public programs every week, where people can come and hear discourses on the spiritual text called the Bhagavad Gita. It's one of the primary primary Hindu texts, and they can come and chant and meditate, uh, get some nice vegetarian food. So it's really the ideal place you want to be if you want to connect with people. What are the main principles of the Hindu way of life? Well, there's many. Um, I think one of the <clears throat> one of the primary tenets that we follow is that we're ultimately trying to develop uh, love of God. Like I think most other traditions are, we're trying to develop love for the divine, love for the supreme. And you know, we we specifically are monotheistic. Um, as many times people think Hinduism is polytheistic, mm-hmm. and and uh, many Hindus are actually monotheistic. According to the Bhagavad Gita, there's one supreme being. We call him Krishna, and some may call him Allah, Yahweh, Yehovah, but the understanding is we're all praying to the same supreme being. So our goal, and we want to live our life in such a way that everything we do is helping us come closer to that goal of loving God. So if we're doing something that's moving us away from that direction, then you know we want to adjust things so that that means it could be the way we eat, the way we interact with others, and just basically everything in life, the way we treat others and the environment and things like that. So that's one of the main tenets is ultimately we want to develop love of God and to develop a personal relationship with the Supreme because we also feel that Supreme is a, is a person, actually, um, and an infallible person. Now, sometimes when we think of person, we think, okay, it's prone to make mistakes and things like that, but not necessarily. You know, uh, There can be such a thing as an infallible person. And so that's – and the, one of the things that we do is um, – you know, in addition to uh, trying to develop love for the divine. And we do that, one way that we do that is by meditating. Mm-hmm. We do what's called mantra meditation. And uh, so, you know, there's silent meditation. Lots of That's probably the most prominent and popular type of meditation, a silent. And then there's another school of meditation in which you recite uh, audibly 
sacred sounds, uh, Sanskrit sounds. So those sacred sounds are called mantras. So a mantra is a repetition of a sacred sound. That's Give me an example of a mantra. So well, I'll just tell you the mantra that I chant most often. Uh, mantra I think many people have heard of or are familiar with. It's the Hare Krishna mantra. And it's it goes like this. It's Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. Of course, you know, you've seen People have heard this mantra. The Hare Krishna is chanting this in the parks, uh, you know, in different places. And what does it mean? It basically, we're by by repeating the names of God. There are different names of God. So Hare is actually calling out to the feminine aspect of the divine, and Krishna means the all attractive, and Ram means the reservoir of all pleasure. So the divine God has a feminine and masculine aspect, and by reciting the names of God, we're actually having union with God in our heart, in our mind. For example. If you heard the name of somebody you know being called on the street, even if it's not being referred, that person's not the one being called, you'll immediately think of the person that you know who has that same name. So in one sense, now you've thought about that person, you're thinking about their qualities, you're making a connection with that person just through the sound of their uh, name. So the same uh, logic applies here that when we recite audibly and hear the names of God being recited, then we form, the soul makes a connection with the divine and by each time we chant we form the connection and anyone who hears the the mantra the Hare Krishna mantra also forms a connection with the divine so therefore you'll see a lot of times the Hare Krishnas will chant on the streets so others can also hear that and benefit from it so if I were to be stuck in gridlock traffic in Manhattan or the victim of massive subway delays yes what's a mantra that I should recite to myself to ease my frustration. <laughs> well, I, I actually, uh, you know, I'm using the subways all the time and once in a while I even have to drive. And I kind of stick to the Hare Krishna mantra, you know, silently, softly. I have some prayer beads that I just kind of uh, use and uh, just try to focus on that. And, you know, I when I'm in the subway, of course, I'm not going to recite it uh, too loud or audibly. I don't want people freaking out and getting scared of running off the subway car. Um, but I'll do it softly in my mind. You know, that's at least some positive sound vibration, even if it's silently, is coming out of my mouth. And, uh, I mean, I would recommend that. That's what works for me. I know it works for a lot of people. And you can try it for yourself and see if it works for you, you know. Is it ever hard to remain focused on your mission and your beliefs in a great big chaotic city like New York? Well, of course, you know, New York City does make it pretty clear why you're here. I mean, if you're in New York, you pretty much know why you're here. <laughs> so I think anyone who's living here has a pretty clear idea what their mission is. So I think if I was living in a more serene environment, I'd probably have a, maybe have a tendency to forget my mission more. But, you know, I live on First Avenue. I walk out, and it's clear why I'm in this madness. It's really just to really connect with as many people as I can. Uh, of course, you know, the mind does wander, you know, constantly when you're meditating, so it's not always fixed and focused. Uh, but I think New York kind of helps me remember very clearly why I'm here. It's hard to forget your purpose living in New York. I think once you forget that, you move out of New York. New York City has been described as a soulless city at times. What mm -hmm. do you think about that perception of New York City as a soulless city? I look out my window from the Lower East Side or the rooftop of our building, I see churches all around me. There's churches all over 2nd Avenue, all over the Lower East Side. I, I'm really wondering how somebody would come to that statement. You know, you've got pretty much every tradition can be accessed just from where I live. Within 10 minutes, you could probably walk into any kind of uh, spiritual institution. And so 
I think it's probably got, I think Manhattan in itself probably has more soul than a good chunk of America combined. Because another place, you have to drive five miles, ten miles to get to a church. Here you can, five minutes, you can be in a church, in a temple, a Hindu temple like ours, synagogue. So I think there's a, a lot of soul here. Uh, and I think the people here are also very serious about their spirituality. They're ready to have a discussion about spirituality, um, I think, more than maybe in a lot of other places. Because, you know, in New York, people are kind of on the street a lot. They're walking around. And, you know, I walk around a lot of times in my robes, as I'm uh, dressed in today. People won't hesitate to ask me, uh, you know, what my beliefs are, who I am, and, you know, what, you know why I'm wearing the things that I'm wearing. So people, I think, uh, are inquisitive. Very what are open. some of the things that New Yorkers typically want to know from you? Oh, one of the first things they ask me, are you a Buddhist monk? You know, and because that's what they see on TV, right? Every popular movie that shows any kind of monks, it's Buddhist monks. So they immediately think that I'm a Buddhist monk. And I say, no, I'm a Hindu monk. One time, uh, a guy asked me, hey, are you a Shaolin monk? And do you know Kung Fu? (laughs) 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 A lot of TV, obviously, for Uh that person. But that's kind of one of the first things um, they ask me. And... uh, and usually there's not so much time. Uh, you know, they ask me, like, okay, what, what do you believe? I said, well, we believe in, you know, we want to develop a love of God and we want to try to become more humble and try to remember God throughout our day somehow or other, you know? You mentioned your robe, and you say in the book that you were very self-conscious walking around the streets of New York City initially in your robe and your shaved head. Yeah, yeah. When I first uh, moved into the monastery, it was like 13 years ago. You know, my, the first monastery I had experience I had was in India in Mumbai. And it's India, so it was a little easier to do this uh, because this is like traditional cloth of India. And when I came to New York, obviously you don't see people walking around in robes. So I was a little self-conscious. You know, people you know, people are looking at you a little bit, and you're just not sure. Because I wasn't even sure I really wanted to be a monk when I first moved into the monastery. And so every time people would look at me, it would always make me question, like, hmm, is this, do I really need to do this, you know? But gradually, I became more and more comfortable just as I became more comfortable with who I was. Uh, I was able to answer questions more clearly when people a- asked them before I wasn't, you know, before the fear also was like, I hope they don't ask me anything because I wouldn't, wasn't sure how to answer them. You know, I was kind of a new person in the monastery. So, yeah, initially it was kind of challenging. Um, but I think within a year or two, like right now, what happens is people still look because you can't not look at this, right? And... Um, I said, like, why are they looking? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm dressed in robes. I really actually forget that I'm dressed differently than other people. How easy is it to get into that robe, by the way? Uh, it's a lot easier now than it was in the beginning. In the beginning, I'd put it on, and it would start slipping off, or I'd be tripping over it. Um, now, I'd say about 30 seconds. You know, it's still longer than putting on a pair of pants, uh, but it takes about 30 seconds, and you're, you're kind of ready to go. Sounds like that could be an Olympic sport. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> Some are faster than others. <laughs> You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boraki. I'm joined this morning by Gadadhar Pandit Das. He's a Hindu monk, a lecturer, and the author of the book Urban Monk, Exploring Karma, Consciousness, and the Divine. You mentioned that you weren't sure that you wanted to be a monk when you first entered the monastery. What inspired you to become a monk? Well... You know, even when I went to the monastery in India, it wasn't with the intention of becoming a monk. 
you know, a lot of people take time off and take a little retreat to some place, you know, a spiritual retreat. That was what my intention was. It was a one-month retreat, nothing more. Literally, that's how it started in 1999 when I first went to India. Where did you go to India from? Where were you living before that? Um, right in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. you know? Of course, I grew up in L.A. and long story, <clears throat> ended up in New Jersey eventually. Went to India and Mumbai with the idea of being there for a month. Ended up staying six months in India because I just the experience was so powerful. The most pow profound experience I'd ever had in my life. Then I came back to the U.S., um, moved into the monastery in Manhattan, which is where I was kind of going before I went to India. And the temple, and I said, okay, let me, that was so good, let me see what it's like in America. It just The experience was too good for me to like just discontinue it. So I moved in, deciding maybe, maybe okay, two to three months, you know, maybe summertime, and then after the summer's over, I'll go back and get a job or something like that. And then somehow it just started happening that um, I started lecturing a little bit. A friend of mine invited me. He was doing his doctoral work at Columbia, and he said, why don't we do some spiritual programming for the students here, and I was thinking, okay, I mean, I didn't know what that meant, really. I mean, I never expected to do anything like that. So I said, sure. Then we st I started doing some lectures in the Bhagavad Gita, and I found it to be super fulfilling. I couldn't understand why I was so happy that I could lecture and teach and guide others in their spirituality. And then week after week, the programs kept going. They kept growing. More people started coming. And I just found myself thrilled after each session. And it was very distinctly a feeling that I've never had a thrill like that other than when I was like on a roller coaster ride, mm -hmm. uh, you know. That's some thrill. That is a thrill. And, and I and it actually, I remember the feeling even out very clearly that it was so exciting to be able to guide others in their spirituality and see them coming back again and again. Something inside me told me that this is really the right thing to do. You know, not that being a monk is the right thing to do, but to guide others in their spirituality was really the right thing to do because nothing else could feel this good because they weren't paying me. I wasn't getting anything in return except a, a thank you, which was a very heartfelt thank you. And that thank you was my payment. That was kind of all I needed. Um, it was really satisfying. And I realized that if something like this can make me feel so good and not getting any kind of anything in return other than a gratitude, like there's got to be something right about this kind of work. You are the first Hindu chaplain both at Columbia University and NYU, right? Yes, at, at Columbia I'm called a religious life advisor, and at, at NYU it's chaplain, same basic function. Yeah, I'm the first one for both campuses. They've never had a Hindu uh, chaplain representative. Most universities in the country do not have a Hindu chaplain. You know, there's only two million Hindus in the country. So we don't need that many. But what's interesting is even most of the students who come to me aren't Hindus. They are not of a Hindu. They're not even Indian. They are from, you know, Abrahamic faith backgrounds. And some of them are agnostic or atheist or some will classify themselves as Bujus or Buddhist Jewish combined or Hindus. Uh, in a Hindu-Jewish kind of a combination. What kinds of things are they seeking guidance from you for? A variety of things. When I sit with a student, I have no idea what they're going to get into. It could be anything. Sometimes it's just, you know, I'm not sure about my major, what I want to do after I graduate. Sometimes it could be that they're going through a broken relationship. Uh, sometimes it could be just broken relationships at home. Um, maybe they experience the death of a loved one. I mean, it's really anything and everything under the sun. And, some, and not always is it that intense. Sometimes I just want to know, like, you know, how do I meditate? I kind of want to meditate more. Some want to know, 
like, you know, I want to become vegetarian. I'm thinking about a vegetarian diet, a vegetarian lifestyle, and uh, how do I go about that? So it could be all kinds of things, so spiritual to completely non-spiritual. You conduct vegetarian cooking classes in New York City, don't you? Well, I, I was doing it at Columbia University for about 11 straight years, and we were getting almost 100 students every single week. Wow. And we were feeding everybody. Uh, so right now, that isn't happening so much because I'm kind of busy with other lecturing opportunities. Uh, but I was doing that, and it was incredible. The students, I mean, it wasn't just a vegetarian cooking class. We used to call it cooking with consciousness, meaning really putting your consciousness into the food you're cooking and how cooking and eating, if done with the right consciousness, can actually be a kind of yoga practice. Now, because yoga means to connect with the divine. If you're cooking and understanding that you're cooking for the pleasure of God, and that's what we would explain. We're cooking at you right now, not for our enjoyment or nourishment. Really, we're cooking for the pleasure of God. It's a real selfless act. You know, when you, when you love someone or you're trying to love someone, one of the best things you can do is cook for them. I and mean, it really kind of melts people's heart. Like, wow, you actually cooked for me? Right? Who does that? You know, to take you out to dinner, but to like cook a whole meal? That's a big endeavor. So we're doing the same thing. We're, we're cooking for the pleasure of God. And then we all enjoy the food afterwards. And so it would be a really far out concept for students that, you know, that yeah, we're cooking for the pleasure of God. It's just, you know, like I said, they're not Hindus. You know, there's mostly from every, but they're very open to learning. That all being said, how do you approach eating out in New York City? Well, I really don't eat out much. And, you know, so what I'm saying, the things that I'm describing are, you know, things that you can do as much as you can, how and when you can. Like if you want, you know, because... Think about it for a moment. Let's say you're offering, let's say you have an apple, you're about to eat an apple. If you offer the, the apple to the divine, what happened? In that moment, you stepped out of your present day reality, work, this and stress and all these things. And now you're taking the moment to, to connect with the divine for that few moments and recognize that this apple that I'm going to eat, let me offer it to the divine because that's where it came from actually. So just a whole shift in consciousness took place, even if it was for 30 seconds. So as much as we can, whenever we can, why not? It doesn't have to be, you know, as a monk, I have more flexibility. You know, I'm, I'm eating three cooked meals a day, and they're all offered, so it's more flexible. But if you're working, there's always ways to shift our consciousness, and it's just a matter of if we really want to do that, you know? And I think we'll experience the benefit when we do. As a Hindu monk, you've taken a vow of celibacy, and you say in the book that New York City does everything but support a celibate lifestyle. How so? Well, I mean, we, we live right next to nightclubs. <laughs> I mean, you know, what's going to happen when you're in the nightclub? There's a reason people are in there, <laughs> right? There's a reason they're in there. They're not in there to get a drink because you can get that at the liquor store, right? They're in there for another purpose, to connect with other people, which they hope will lead to other things, right? So, you know, every bus that drives by has got a billboard that kind of, you know, it just grabs your attention. So, and, you know, it's, that's just how New York is. It's a city full of young people, very active people, and it you know naturally, if you're trying to be celibate, that's challenging because you know as monks, we're still men, and it's not that we just because we shave our head, all our desires get shaved off every time we shave. I wish it was that easy i I, I really wish it was, but so you know you're living in an environment that is very, very i think maybe most of the world is it's very, very sexually charged. that's good what people are after, you know, and you can feel it in the air actually right it's, it's really in the air and so so that's obviously naturally challenging and then uh, and then you know the way to deal with that at least for us is you know having the company of other monks you know or people who are aspiring to live a similar lifestyle 
you know um so you know just like you get a gym membership why there's a park you go jog in the park but when you see that someone else is huffing and puffing running on the treadmill it's kind of easier to keep running so the idea is to surround yourself by other people who have a similar value structure want to live a similar lifestyle or are aspiring for similar goals and that kind of helps um in any pursuit hugging is a no-no in your book isn't it no hugging uh as a monk um i don't uh, hug women men it's okay uh but you know the idea is that we're trying not to have that kind of intimate um connection with women and not to say that it doesn't happen because this is america in the west you know I wasn't always a monk. I grew up in LA, so hugging your friends, guys and girls was kind of normal way of saying hi and goodbye, you know, things like that. So, you know, it still kind of happens after a lecture somebody comes up thanks you and like, "Oh, they'll just kind of, "Hey, thank you so much." Boom, a big hug. And then so they're like, hey, "Was it okay to hug you?" Like, "Well, as a monk, I I avoid that." And then sometimes they feel bad. I'm like, "You know, don't feel bad. You didn't know about it." Um, uh, but we just try to avoid that intimate contact um uh, with the opposite sex. uh because we maintain celibacy. You've incorporated pop culture into your teachings, particularly the movie The Matrix. What does The Matrix have to do with Hinduism? Everything. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> well, a lot, okay. Um you know, there's many concepts in that movie that are very similar to the teachings of Hinduism. One of the main concepts um that um I talk about is the concept of illusion and reality. Cuz the Matrix, the movie The Matrix says that explains that you know the character Neo, for I think for most who have seen the movie, is convinced that there is another reality somewhere out there. Of course, he's using the internet in Hinduism, that's not the recommended method to use the computer to find reality. It's to go inward, you know, not outward into this computer screen. But he's convinced there's another reality. And the one that he's living in isn't full and complete. That there's something false about it. So Hinduism says that this material world is a very temporary place. Every building that's here today will be gone eventually tomorrow. Every human being that's here today will be gone tomorrow. So it's kind of illusory. And what happens is we treat the temporary as permanent. We get into a relationship, we hope it lasts forever, but we know it's only going to last a little while. So we get enamored by the temporary. And so therefore we become in an illusioned kind of state. and in the bhagavad gita in the 8th chapter krishna says that everything in this world is temporary subjected to birth death old age and disease and then he says that there there's a spiritual realm he says where i reside where birth and death do not take place so people in the spiritual realm exist in a spiritual form so they have a spiritual body which is not subjected to decay cuz time doesn't function up there the same way that it does down here where time here deteriorates things it doesn't do that up there and so that is a very fascinating concept that the matrix covers that when he wakes up from his illusion he finds himself in the real world of course in the movie the real world's kind of depressing you know but within hinduism it's actually a completely blissful eternal ex- uh, state of existence to be up there in the presence of god and to be in the presence of other spiritual beings So that's one concept of course there's another concept of um teacher you know the idea of like morpheus is like his guide 
He says, I can guide you, but you must do exactly as I say. Um, and you know, I also like to kind of sometimes reference the movie The Karate Kid with Mr. Miyagi and mm-hmm. Daniel-san. He says, I can teach you karate, but you must do exactly what I say, kind of, you know? Uh, so that's a very prominent concept within uh, the Bhagavad Gita and Hinduism in general, is that in order to achieve spiritual perfection, an individual has to have a spiritual guide. Um, you know, in our lives, we've had a spiritual teacher for just about everything we've done. I'm sorry, not a spiritual, a teacher for everything we've done. Every subject in school, we've had a teacher for. If you've played sports in any kind of competitive way, you've got a coach, music, art, whatever it is. So why not? And some people are not really into the idea of a, a spiritual teacher or guide or guru. But it's kind of an important, um, very important relationship with a spiritual teacher uh, who you've examined, you know, you don't just blindly accept a teacher, and then who has walked the path that you're about to walk, which is what a teacher has done, and is experienced and can hopefully prevent you from going off course and just be there as a guide to help you and help you grow. So, you know, I make these connections, and it's very refreshing for people uh, to talk about a tradition that's probably super foreign to them in a way that they can relate to it. You mentioned that you grew up in L.A., and I know that you grew up loving the ocean. But do you get that ocean fix in New York City at all, whether it be on Coney Island or the Rockaways? You know, it's just not the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) L.A. beaches and New York beaches. I'll tell you, when I first moved out here, went to the beach somewhere on Long Island, super excited. And I was like, where are the waves? I really I was like, like something is wrong. I, I couldn't I didn't know that the Atlantic is a little different. You know, I was mm-hmm. like, hey, there's no waves. And I was so disappointed. <laughs> you know, for me, ocean meant waves, a boogie board, body surfing, something active. So I'm just like waiting there. I'm like, oh, this is kind of like a big lake. I get it. And then after that, I just, my, uh, you know, love of the ocean wasn't the same as it it was, but the love of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> if not New York City, where else? Where else would you want to be if you had to give up New York City? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I've only lived in two major cities here in L.A. Uh, and um, so I don't really know. I think I might just by default, I would have to say L.A. because that's where I grew up. I had a great time there. Weather is always awesome. Um, you know, I like the here. I like the all the public transportation. That's incredible. Uh, but, you know, you can never have everything that you want. Uh, so if I had to, I guess I would just say right now there, but who knows what other opportunities might pop up in life. I mean, I never expected to go from L.A. to living in East Europe to living in uh, in New Jersey then to living in a monastery in India. and then near, I mean, you know, I never expected any of this. So who knows what the future holds? But I guess I'm kind of open to it, and I think I have to be. <laughs> what do your parents think of you being a monk? Their th- uh, thoughts on this have evolved um, significantly. Because in the beginning, of course, you know, that's not what a parent hopes. A parent's hoping that, you know, the the son or the daughter or whatever is going to make some money, give them some grandkids, things like that. So it's obviously, it was, I think, a little disappointing, maybe a little shocking. I know it was, you know, it's very difficult for my mom that I was going to uh, go this route. Uh, but over time, what happened was they actually became much more serious about their own spirituality because I encouraged them in it. And now they come to the Bhakti Center where I live every week, and they actually do active service. They're like, my parents have been doing service at our temple for the last 10 years every week. Uh, and so you know, now they're really, really happy. They actually encourage that I just stay a monk forever if I can. Hmm. You know, That's kind of their hope now, believe it or not. And that's kind of very strange coming from Indian parents. What behaviors do you see on the streets of New York City on a regular basis that you think need to change? Oh, 
That's an interesting question. Well, I, I mean, I guess there's so much that we need to change about our society and a culture. Um, but I guess one thing is I'm hoping that people can be a little bit more accepting of other people's religious belief systems. You know, that's one thing. Uh, that's one thing. You know, there's so many things. And also, I mean, it's New York. It's a city that's always moving, the city that never sleeps. I think one thing that also is, um, I think if we could all learn to be a little bit more patient, <laughs> that would be great, you know, a little more patient. Um, and, of course, that's, you know, the city just doesn't breed an environment where patience is encouraged. Uh, but, you know, if we don't try, then, gosh, what kind of society are we becoming? What are we teaching the next generation? And, uh, you know, if we're, and, you know, I believe what goes around comes around. So, like karma, if we're not patient with others, then others won't be patient with us. And uh, that's ultimately not so pleasant, you know. Recite the Hare Krishna, right? That'll exercise some patience. Yes, it'll definitely help. It'll definitely help. But we also have to consciously want to be patient, you know. The book is Urban Monk, Exploring Karma, Consciousness, and the Divine. Pandit, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Gadadhar Pandit Das is a monk, lecturer, and the first ever Hindu chaplain for Columbia and New York universities. For more information or your own copy of Urban Monk, visit urbanmonkbook.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Veronica Volk and producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUVHD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.